Mark chapter 6 again this evening. Mark chapter 6. Tonight we're going to uh, pick up where we left off with this morning's message. I didn't tell you when I started the message this morning that uh, I had seven pages of notes because I thought you might get a little scared. So I just figured I would preach until I thought we were at a good stopping point and then if we didn't get all the way through, we'd pick back up tonight. If we did finish it, we'd talk about the birth of Samson tonight. So maybe we'll do Samson next week. We'll see. But we're going to pick up tonight at verse number 12. But to uh, begin with, let's read our text again, which is Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse number 7. And we'll read down through verse number 13. And he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust of your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil, many that were sick, and healed them. As we looked this morning, we saw first of all the command or the commission that Jesus gave to His disciples in, uh, in verse number 7 as He called the original twelve and and uh, called them out to go and to preach. We saw the company that He gave them as He sent them out by twos, and reminding us that in our business of, of sharing the message of the gospel with the world, God has not left us alone. We have partners in one another, and we have part, a partner in God Himself. Then we saw their continual um, uh, dependence. Before that, verse number 7, we saw the third point, which was the capacity that they have been given or the power to do it as Christ gave them power over unclean spirits. And we're actually going to return more to that at the end of the message tonight as we see what the Lord did through them. Then in verse number 8, uh, we saw that continual dependence, how that Jesus told them that they were to go out with, with just minimal resources, trusting Him to, to provide for them along the way. Uh, they were not to have anything but a stick, a coat, and a pair of sandals. Uh, and that was it. But, but God would provide for them and they were to be content uh, with that provision. And then we saw that um, after all of this, they were obedient and they went out. And uh, they, as verse number 12 says, we left off there this morning. They went out and uh, they obeyed the, the uh, command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their compliance as they went out and uh, they, uh, they began to preach the message of the gospel. And we're going to pick up right there tonight. Um, with verse number 12 and uh, just to kind of review what was involved in what they were doing when Jesus said they went out again it means they left from where they were and they went to another place for the purpose of preaching the message of salvation as Jesus had instructed them. For us today that is the equivalent of going and fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go out into the world and to preach the gospel. 
As Acts 1.8 puts it, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the, under the uttermost part of the earth. All of, all of those places have to do with out there, going somewhere else. Even if it's somewhere close by, there is an intention of going in order to proclaim the gospel so that other people would be saved. Now, if I were to take a poll in here tonight and I were to ask, who, how many of you would like to see more people saved? I'm going to guess that 100% of everybody in this room tonight would say, I want to see more people saved. I do not think anybody in here would take the opposite approach and say, I don't want to see more people saved. Well, if we want to see more people saved, then we must be doing what these disciples did and what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to do. We must be going out and preaching the message of the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us tonight as we uh, look in your word and we see the truth that you have for us. Help us to understand our responsibility in sharing the message of the gospel. And Lord, may we not only see it as a duty, but also as a privilege to be a part of the, the wonderful, beautiful plan of salvation and to be that one for someone else who shares the message of the gospel that they might be saved. Lord, you have given us the honor of being a part and I pray that we would take advantage of that in dependence on you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are the reason, is the reason that we do not see many people saved because we have a lack of opportunity to encounter lost people? I don't think it is. I don't think our problem in America is, not a, lack, is a lack of opportunity. I know we live in the South. I know there's a church on every corner. And if you were to look at it in uh, secular terms, you might say that the market is saturated. But the fact of the matter is that there are people all around us right here in our own community of Rutledge, Georgia and the surrounding areas who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel or who have heard and have not yet accepted Christ as their Savior. It's not a lack of opportunity that prevents us from seeing lost people saved. Most of the time, to be blunt, it's a lack of obedience. And then we act surprised and we ask questions and we say, well, why doesn't God do what He did in the years gone by? How come we don't see people being saved like we read about them being saved in uh, other times in history? And the fact of the matter is, a lot of the burden of it, a lot of the responsibility of it falls on us. It would be kind of like going to the doctor because you were sick and the doctor said, well, you've got this and here's some medicine and so you go home and two weeks later you go back to the doctor for a follow-up and you're not feeling any better. You're actually feeling worse. And the doctor says, I don't understand it. I, the medicine I gave you should have worked. And you said, oh, I didn't take the medicine. Well, the doctor said, well, that's why you're not getting any better. Of course, we understand that if we don't do what the doctor says, that his advice is not going to help. And in the same way, if we don't obey what God has told us to do, we should not be surprised when we don't see the results that God says we would see if we did obey. If 
we want to see a church grow, if we want to see God's blessing, if we want to see souls saved, then we have to do what God has said. The Apostle Paul, he he understood this, this motivation of obedience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Notice the word necessity that Paul used there. He said, a necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul's attitude was, I need to be sharing the gospel with others. Some people would discount that by saying, well, he was an apostle. He was called by God into full-time ministry. Of course he would say that. I ask you, was the responsibility to share the gospel unique to Paul? Was that command only given to the Apostle Paul? No, that's been given to all of God's people. And as he said in verse 17, if we do it willingly, we have a reward. By the way, God does not have to reward us for our obedience. God could demand obedience and not reward us, and He would still be just in doing so. But God is, God is a good God, and God says, if you will obey, I will reward you. So if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But then he said, but if against my will. In other words, even if I don't feel like doing it, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. That word dispensation is a fancy word for responsibility. I have a responsibility to share the gospel. The disciples understood that when Jesus sent them forth, that they had a responsibility to go and do what Jesus said. And so they complied with Jesus' command and they went out. Soul winning should be more than a duty for us, but it is the duty of every Christian to share the gospel with the lost. Now I want you to notice with me our next point. It's point 172 if you're keeping an outline. I want you to see with me the content of their message from verse number 12. The content of their message. It says, And they went out and preached that men should... What's that next word? Repent. Say it again. Y'all are still a little bit groggy. All right, That they should... Repent. Very good. Notice that one word is all we are told, that phrase including that word repent, is all that we're told about the content of their message. They did not go out and tell people that they needed to turn over a new leaf. They did not go out and and give people a 12-step program how to have a better life. They did not go out and share with people a bunch of popular psychology about how to have, you know, make every day a Friday or anything like that. They went out and they proclaimed the message of the gospel and the message of salvation, which Mark summarized in this idea that men should repent. And so tonight I want to take a minute to talk about what it was that they were preaching and why it was that the Holy Spirit summarized it with the idea of repentance here. Because there's a lot of confusion over repentance that we see in our world today. Some people avoid the idea of repentance altogether. And a lot of the 
confusion seems to stem from a misunderstanding of the biblical idea of repentance. And unfortunately, like a lot of things in, in sharing the gospel, a lot of the confusion can be traced directly back to Satan's corruption of the gospel message. To some people, when they hear the word repent, or they hear somebody say, uh, talk about repentance or um, anything like that, immediately they get a picture in their mind of someone who is going through some kind of a religious ritual that often involves pain and punishment of themselves to, to, uh, make, to display how sorry they are for their sin. And depending on which religious background they have been uh, influenced by, they may have one or different kind of meaning. And they have this idea that repentance is some kind of a work that you do to prove that you are really sorry for your sin. That is not biblical repentance. The idea of repentance, according to the Word of God, is simply to change your mind to the right way of thinking. So the word itself literally means to change one's mind. If you were to look at the, uh, uh, the word in the Greek in a dictionary, metanoia means to change one's mind. Now the biblical concept is that we're not just changing our mind from one random thing to another random thing, but that we're changing our mind to come in line with God's way of thinking. So we're changing our mind from the wrong way to the right way, which is God's way. Turn over to Acts chapter 26, if you would. This is a verse that I think explains very well the idea of repentance. And again, we have, a, we have a, a strict literal definition, but then we also have with that the biblical idea of what biblical repentance is. So you might say it this way, we have the letter of the definition, but then we also have the spirit of the definition that we need to understand. And the idea of repentance scripturally, Acts 26 verse 20 encapsulates it very well. It says, Picking up in the middle of Paul's testimony here, but he says, But showed first unto them of Damascus and Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works meet for repentance. Now, this verse uses the word repentance twice, or a form of it, but with that also explains the idea of what biblical repentance is. So notice with me, as they were proclaiming the message, they, re, they, that they preached that they should repent and turn to God. That phrase explains the biblical idea of repentance. Because the changing of mind, strictly speaking, anybody can do that about anything. But biblical pre, uh, repentance that brings salvation is to turn your mind to God. So it's to change your thinking from the wrong way, the sinful way of thinking, to God's way of thinking. And then notice also as they were preaching, they preached, they proclaimed that they were to do works meet for repentance. This is not adding works to salvation. What they were teaching is that if it is genuine repentance, then it will produce works that are in line with it. See the word meet there, M-E-E-T, works meet for repentance. That means agreeable or suitable to so that they were to repent, turn to God, and do works that agreed with repentance. 
So the concept of repentance is more than just a single definition. It's a bigger idea than that that involves a choice that people make to turn from their sin to God. It's not a work. It's a choice. But it is a choice that will produce certain works that agree with that change of mind. So some have defined repentance as a change of mind that results in a change of life or a change of direction. That is a simple definition, but unfortunately, some people take issue with it. They say, well, you're adding works to salvation. If you are understanding it correctly, you're not adding works to salvation. The works are not repentance. The works are the result of repentance. Very, very important distinction. Repentance is changing your mind to God's way of thinking. It's realizing and believing that your works cannot save you and that you must trust Christ alone and choosing to turn from your sin to the Savior, placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, like faith, is not a work. Let me also say that those who teach lordship salvation are also in error. The idea of lordship salvation, you may or may not be figure, uh, familiar with that figure of speech, but there are some who teach that in order to be saved, you have to make Jesus the Lord of every area of your life. And what it amounts to is surrender before salvation. They say that if, if there's any part of your life that you did not identify and surrender to Christ, then you didn't really get saved. That's not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is not that I have to go through my life and catalog all my sins and catalog all of my holding outs and all of my wrong desires and all of my lusts and, and I have to put together this big binder of all my badness and then once I get that binder of badness together, then I come to God and say, all right, here it is, here's all my badness, I give it to you, now I can be saved. Friends, that's a works-based salvation. The biblical idea is not that we have to catalog all of our sins and faults and have that binder of badness, but rather that we acknowledge that we are sinful creatures. There's a difference. We have to confess that we are sinners. We have to repent of that sinfulness. But when it comes to listing all of those things, nobody could even do that. If I were to ask you a room full of Primarily, if not exclusively, Christians in here. I know we have a few younger people especially who haven't yet gotten to the age where they understand. But if I were to ask this room of people, I want you to give me an accounting of all the sins that you've committed today. How many of you would be confident that you could list every sin that you've committed today? Don't raise your hand, okay? Some of you are like, well, I only did one. <laughs> I doubt it. You know, if we were to just try to sit down, restrict it to one day and say, let's list all the sins we committed today, we'd have a hard time doing that. And so if it were necessary for us to go back and list all the sins that we've ever committed in all of our life and to give all of, uh, all of that to God before we could be saved, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And so there, was, there needs to be a clear understanding of what repentance is if we talk about re preaching repentance. How many of you were here uh, for the Sunday school lesson in our revival meeting with Brother um, 
Duke. How many of you were here for that? Okay, very good. You might be thinking right now, are, are, are you arguing with him? Believe it or not, I was paying attention in that Sunday school lesson too. Well, Brother Duke said, and, and he said, and this is a near quote, and he, was, he was giving a lesson on clarity in the gospel, presenting a clear uh, presentation of the gospel. And he was giving, in his opinion, some, some helpful suggestions for avoiding confusion in proclaiming the gospel. One of the things that he, he dwelt on, and some of you will remember this, was avoiding the word repentance and repent. He specifically mentioned that. But here's what he said, quote, we preach the idea of repentance, just not the word. That was his suggestion. And he will tell you that that was his suggestion. Now, I'm going to get to in a minute my take on that. But I just want you to understand that he was not preaching against the idea of repentance, in case there's any confusion there, all right? He is a firm believer in the idea of repentance. His point was that he has encountered confusion when using that word sometimes, and so if he can communicate the idea without using the word, then he will do that. That was his, his point. But what I want you to see with me from Scripture is that preaching repentance is absolutely biblical, and we must do it. So look with me in Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. By the way, this is a rabbit trail. I don't expect every guest that we have here to say everything exactly like I would say it. Okay, I appreciate it when other, uh, other preachers of the gospel have a, have a different perspective and have a different angle. I also appreciate the fact that I know that I'm a pastor and I can come back behind them and clarify if I need to. I am very careful that we don't have people in here who are going to preach or teach heresy. I hope you know that. And, uh, and, I, and I don't in any way think that, uh, uh, that that's been a danger, uh, certainly um, not in any time in the recent past here at our church. I'm thankful so much for the, God that, uh, the guys that God has sent to us. Back on the main trail now. Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days, verse number 1, came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't it interesting that the first recorded word in our English Bible that John the Baptist preached, his public ministry began with the word, Repent. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Furthermore, he would demand a particular kind of repentance, a genuine repentance that would produce genuine results. Look down at verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So his message was not just repent. There was an explanation and an expectation here that it would be a kind of repentance that would, re, that would bring particular results. There would be fruit, meat, that's that word again, agreeable to repentance. There would be evidence of genuine repentance. Sometimes people claim they are repentant 
just because they feel bad. Look, feeling bad about something you did, feeling guilty about something you did, is not the same as being repentant. Paul talked about that in his letter to the Corinthians when he said that godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. So John the Baptist preached repentance. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Some might try to object and say, well, that repentance stuff was before the cross. We've already seen Acts 26 verse 20, which was after the cross. But I want you to see Peter's very first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 37. He's preached the sermon, and the people that were listening to him asked the question, it says, they were, when they heard it, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? All right, you've told us all this stuff, Peter. What, what do we need to do with it, Peter? Look with me here at verse number 38. Then Peter said unto them, what's that next word? A little louder. Okay, thank you. We are going to do Father Abraham if you don't. Okay, all right. They said, what do we do then? You've told us that Jesus is the one that was promised that He died and He rose again. You're saying He's alive. So what do we do with this now, Peter? Peter said, repent. Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Turn to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John saw a lame man healed, and then they began to preach Jesus to the crowd that was there. And notice what they proclaimed in verse number 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So in his first two recorded sermons, Peter told those who were listening to him to repent. But the most important person that preached repentance was Jesus Christ Himself. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 records the time that Jesus was uh, in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. During that time He was tempted. And then after the 40 days of fasting and temptation, Jesus began His public ministry. This is really the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry of preaching and teaching. It says, Matthew 4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, what's that next word? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just like John the Baptist, the first word recorded in our Bible that Jesus preached was the word repent. From then on, repentance would be a major theme of Jesus' sermons. Matthew 9, 13 but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. 
Luke 15 and verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Anyone who refuses to preach the idea of repentance is not following the example of Jesus. Repentance is important because without repentance, there is no salvation. The kind of repentance that is necessary is repentance from our sinfulness, turning from our sin to God. It's changing our minds from that state of, I'm not too bad, or I can fix it, to I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And when that decision is made, it will, if it's a genuine decision, result in a change of direction. Let me illustrate it to you this way. And I've used this before to help us understand the concept. But let's say that you wanted to go from here to Atlanta. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but for sake of illustration, let's say you're going to do that. If you were to go from here to Atlanta, the quickest way would probably be to go out of our parking lot, turn left on Davis Academy Road, go to the stop sign, turn right on Newburn Road, and go to the interchange for I-20, and to get on I-20, what direction? Some of you are directionally challenged. You're like, left, right, getting out your mental compass. West, right, west. So if you wanted to get to Atlanta, and so you did all of that, and you got on I-20 east, how long would it take you to get to Atlanta? long time. But let's just say you, got, you were distracted, you know. Um, I know you wouldn't be texting and driving or anything like that, but uh, maybe you were having a conversation with someone in the car. You weren't paying attention, and so you accidentally got on I-20 East. And you're driving along, and all of a sudden you see an exit 114 for Madison, and you think, wait a second. Madison's the wrong way from Lano, where I was trying to go. At that moment, you've been confronted with the truth. Up to that point, you thought you were going in the right direction. Now, all of a sudden, the truth has been presented to you in the form of a state DOT exit sign. You have a decision to make. What am I going to do with this truth? Now, there's only one of two things that you can do with that. Believe it or not. Okay? You could accept the truth as it was presented to you and say, I'm going in the wrong direction. Or you could say, those state DOT people don't have a... Any idea what they're doing? That sign's wrong. I know I'm going in the right direction. If I go on this road long enough, I know I'll get to Atlanta. And you could keep going in that direction, but you'll never get to Atlanta. The smart thing to do is to believe the sign. Are you with me so far? But if you really believe the sign, what are you going to do? Turn around. If you really believe you're going in the wrong direction, you're going to get off and get on the right side of the interstate and go the right direction. Now, some people would misconstrue that as adding works to salvation. And any illustration is going to be imperfect. So don't misunderstand the parts of the illustration. Getting off the exit is not the repentance. Getting off and turning around is not the repentance. The repentance happens right here. When you see the sign and you change your mind from believing a lie to believing the truth. Getting off and turning around 
Those are the works or the fruits meet for repentance. And if it is genuine repentance, it will produce those kinds of works. One cannot be saved without repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but, not, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, Unless ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. There are only two options. Repent or perish. Now, Turn over to Acts chapter 8. I want to come back and address something I said a moment ago. And I want to, I want to explain to you what your job, your job as a soul winner is when it comes to proclaiming the message of the gospel. Because every person you talk to is going to be different. They're going to have a different background. They're going to have different levels of understanding. They're going to have a different number and a different kind of misunderstandings about the truth and about certain words. And your job and my job as a follower of Christ is to help people understand what the truth is. And I want to illustrate that to you here from Acts chapter 8. It's the story of Philip. Philip is, um, was an evangelist and he was a preacher of the gospel. He's been out preaching the gospel when the Holy Spirit tells him to go down to Gaza because there's somebody there who needs to trust Jesus. So Philip goes down there and uh, he sees this chariot. Verse 29, we're going to pick up in the middle of the story. Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Now pause right here for a second. So he saw this, this chariot and in it was this, this Ethiopian official. Ethiopian eunuch uh, who worked for the queen of Ethiopia and he had been in Jerusalem worshiping and he's on his way back to Ethiopia and Philip runs up to the chariot and he's running alongside the chariot here. Hey buddy, what you reading? And he says that he's reading from Isaiah. And he, and he, and he asks him the question, Philip verse 30. Understandest thou what thou readest? Now remember this conversation is all taking place while Philip is trotting alongside him. All right? That's why preachers need to be in shape. Somebody said, round is a shape. Okay? He's running alongside him, and he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? Notice verse 31. This man wasn't even saved yet, but he had a hold of a very important truth. He said, How can I accept some man should guide me? Do you hear that? Here's a lost man saying to this, this deacon and preacher of the gospel, how can I understand this unless some man guide me? Folks, that's why Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. That's why Jesus said to all of His disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because God wants us to be the guide for the lost to help them understand the truth. So he invites Philip up into the chariot with him. 
in the place of Scripture where he read, verse 32, He was like a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. He's quoting from Isaiah here. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? Notice the question, verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? What was this man's difficulty here? What was he having a hard time understanding? This was a very intelligent man. He was educated, but he could not he was stuck on one particular point, and it was, a, it was a point of grammar of all things. How many grammar aficionados do we have in here? Two of you. Like, <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know, I can't even English very good. I don't know. Some people are very, very uh, particular about grammar and certain things. I, I'm not so much myself, but... I understand why some people are. This was, a, this was a grammar question, all right? In grammar, you have pronouns, all right? Pronouns are words that stand for other nouns. So he, him, she, her, those are, those are examples of pronouns. And when you have pronouns in a sentence, you have something called an antecedent. You're like, anti-what? That was back in high, yeah, that was many years ago. I know, I had to look it up myself, okay? An antecedent, that is the noun that the pronoun stands for, all right? Uh, so if I had the sentence, John ran through the woods and he tripped on a log, all right? He is a pronoun, John is the antecedent. Who is he? It's John, so there's the connection there. This man could not understand who the he was. Listen, listen to it again. The place in the, in the scripture where he read was, he was led like a sleep to the slaughters, like a Lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he, not his mouth. And so there's all of these he's and his's. And his question was, who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? He didn't understand who, the, who it was talking about. Now notice what Peter did. Excuse me, Philip. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. Isaiah 53 is talking all about Jesus. And so what Philip did is said, I'll tell you who he's talking about. I'll tell you about Jesus. Notice what Philip didn't do. He did not advocate for a new translation of the Bible. He did not advocate for anything else. What he did is he took the responsibility to guide this man into the truth. I will explain it to you. When we preach the gospel to the lost, they're going to have a lot of questions. And we have to be ready to give answers. And we have to be ready to explain to them truths that to them are going to be kind of confusing. And there is no one way to do that other than to say it must be done according to the Bible. But every situation is going to be a little bit different. So to Brother Duke's point, there are some situations where you don't want to use the word repentance because it's going to create more confusion. But it's your responsibility as a soul winner to make sure that they understand the idea. In other cases, maybe you do use the word, but at any point you have to preach the concept. 
It's our responsibility to go and preach the gospel message and to do so in a way that people can understand. Now notice with me, we're all the way back in Mark chapter 6. We kind of went all the way around the cul-de-sac there, but we're back in Mark chapter 6 and we'll close with this in verse number 13. It says, They cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. We have here what I'm going to call our last point, the confirmation of their message. So Jesus had given them the power to cast out devils. And with that came some other things that are articulated in verse 13. In particular, they were able to heal the sick. Now, we touched on this this morning. But the reason that God gave these disciples and the early church these supernatural abilities was to confirm that the words that they were proclaiming were indeed the truth and were the Word of God. Turn to Mark chapter 16. We're giving your thumbs a workout. Mark chapter 16. Verse number 17. Jesus said to His disciples, These signs shall follow them that believe. In My name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Verse 20 says, They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. That was the purpose of those sign gifts, to confirm the message of the gospel. You see, in this day, the Old Testament had been fulfilled. The New Testament was being entered into. And so it required a new revelation. And as a part of that, the sign gifts were given to confirm, to prove that this new revelation was divine to prove to those who doubted that the doctrines of Christ were true. But once the Scripture was completed, they were proven true once and for all. The sign gifts were no longer needed. So the sign gifts like they had there are not in operation today. And this message is not about the charismatic movement, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But just to say this, that though the sign gifts may not be in operation, the work of the Holy Spirit is very much ongoing today. And let me explain the difference this way as I close. In at Mark chapter 6, the Holy Spirit confirmed the Word with signs. But in our day, the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of conviction. The outcome is the same because people are convinced of the truth. In that day, it was through outward signs. In this day, it is through the inward working of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. The job of the Holy Spirit is to convince people of the truth about their sin and their need of a Savior so that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ. The Holy Spirit draws people to Christ, not to Himself, as it were. And that work of the Holy Spirit is invisible, taking place in the heart of man. We read a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it described the conviction that the people were under as being pricked in their hearts. And so while we may not have the gift of healing, for example, today, what we do have 
is the indwelling Holy Spirit with us, empowering us, and the Holy Spirit working in the heart of that lost person to confirm and to convict them of the truth of God's Word. Just like God worked with them, God works with and through us. You know, when you stop and think about it, it's really kind of amazing that God would let us be a part of sharing the gospel. Because, let's just be honest, we kind of have a tendency to mess stuff up, don't we? But you know what? God already took that into account. He knew our, our shortcomings. He, he, he already knew that we were going to stumble and fall and sometimes we were going to stutter and sometimes we were going to misspeak and he knew that we would be imperfect but he chose to use us anyway and when we stop and think about that it's kind of amazing it's kind of amazing that anybody would ever get saved when such flawed people as you and me are responsible for sharing the message of the gospel and that is just a testament to the power and the grace of God so that we can say he gets all the glory when a soul is saved God has commissioned us just like He did those 12 disciples to go and to proclaim the message of the gospel. Let's be faithful to do our part. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for how You have saved us and how You have called us to be a witness for You. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. And Lord, I pray that you would save souls. We plant, and we may water, but you are the one who gives the increase. And so we, we give you all the glory and all the honor for what you do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.